0: This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65, and these are the, pen, these are the words that he pins. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests... And the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony, they did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see me, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven." And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Your outline this morning comes to you by way of the movements of the text or the four scenes that I see clearly marked out for us in the text I would encourage you to take notes I think you'll listen better if you do Number 1 if you're writing them down is this the son of man Jesus Christ the captain of our salvation is arraigned by the sanhedrin The son of man is arraigned by the sanhedrin Look back at your Bible there, specifically verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest and the chief priest and the elders and the scribes. They all came together. They all came together. You know, Jesus was actually tried by both the Jewish and the Roman court system. Uh, The Jewish trial began with Annas. Annas. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was, in, he was initially brought before Annas, who was the former high priest. And Annas then sent Jesus over to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the current high priest, where the Sanhedrin and witnesses were assembled before dawn. And then Jesus was paraded into an early morning hearing, again with the Sanhedrin, that ended in Jesus being bound and then hand over, handed over to the Romans, so you got a Jewish uh, legal proceeding, and you have a Roman legal proceeding here. We see the Jewish legal proceeding taking, taking place first. Annas to Caiaphas to the uh, Sanhedrin. And then in the early morning hours, Jesus is bound and hand, handed over to the Romans. He was first sent to Pilate. Pilate sent him over to Herod Antipas. Who returned him to Pilate? So we see Jesus being jockeyed back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then we know that Pilate, then wishing to satisfy the crowd, released to them Barabbas, and after having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. These are the legal proceedings that are taking place uh, with Jesus here in our text, both this morning and we'll see some more next Sunday. Jesus' trial materializes incredibly quickly, and it materializes with unquestionable injustice. After his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, again, Jesus is led to the house of Annas, who is the former high priest. He's the former high priest. Mark refers to him as the high priest, but that's not technically correct. It's possible it's not correct because there's a mistake in your Bible. Let me get that clear here. It's possible that Mark refers to Annas as the high priest because even though Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is technically the high priest now, Annas was still seen and viewed as the high priest. He was still seen and viewed as the one who had ultimate authority. So Mark refers to Annas as the high priest here. Caiaphas held the position of high priest, but Annas continued to be the real power behind the high priesthood. And this was a preliminary hearing before Jesus would stand trial before the Sanhedrin. We'll talk about the Sanhedrin here in just a few moments. But the purpose, the purpose for this preliminary trial before Annas was to solidify a specific charge against Jesus, which if handed down by Annas would have carried incredibly significant weight. And so everybody's just trying to get their ducks in a row very quickly. Everything is happening incredibly fast. Remember last week, Mark used that word that he uses often throughout his gospel, immediately. Remember, Mark is showing us kind of the the newsreel, the clip-by-clip, moment-by-moment life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so everything's moving quickly. And we see that here in our text. We go directly from the Garden of Gethsemane over to Annas' house, and then everything happens in, uh, in hyper speed before dawn the next day. From Annas, Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling body of the day. It was comprised of 71 members. That's where the word Sanhedrin comes from, 70 was comprised of 71 members, which included scribes and elders, prominent members of the high priestly families. The high priest himself, Joseph Caiaphas, in this case. Joseph Caiaphas served as the president of this ruling body. The most important causes or the most important cases were brought before the Sanhedrin, this particular tribunal, and this for sure, as Jesus was brought before them, was a very important case. Uh, Having said that, this was the informal trial uh, that required a formal ratification after dawn. We'll see that next week as we turn the page over to Mark chapter 15. We see this this trial continuing after dawn. It had to be formally ratified to satisfy strict Jewish legal procedure. Uh, Only trials that were conducted during the daytime were considered to be valid. A quorum consisting of 23 members was required for the Sanhedrin to meet, but on this particular occasion, it seems as though most of the Sanhedrin assembled together. Multiple times, Mark writes, and the whole council assembled together. Jesus would have been placed in the middle of a room where the Sanhedrin sat in an elevated semicircle around him. This was an intimidating place to be. This hasty night meeting was deemed necessary for a few reasons. One, because in Jewish criminal law, it was customary to hold a trial immediately after arrest. Remember, you, you, got, you got the way the Jews uh, handled the court proceedings, and then you, you have the way the Romans uh, handled the court proceedings. Well, in Jewish criminal law, it was customary to hold a trial immediately after arrest. That's why we're now standing before Annas. Roman legal trials were usually held shortly after sunrise. We'll see that chapter 15, verse 1. And then third, with Jesus finally being in custody, it's likely that the Jews did not want to delay the proceedings uh, and thereby arouse opposition. Remember, if Galileans, Galilean supporters of Jesus had found out what was taking place, they would have rallied, rallied to help him. We know already that, that the decision had been made to kill Jesus. That, that, was, that was made uh, way back in chapter 8. They, they determined to kill him. They determined that they would execute him. They determined that they would put him to death, that they would snuff him out and wipe him out. The only problem was getting evidence that would justify it. And so that's what this court proceeding seeks in the early hours of the morning. Now, I I want you to note that we're going to deal with verse 54. Look there at your Bible for just a second. Look at verse 54. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. It's very interesting that in this text, specifically speaking about the Jewish trial that Jesus is, is in the middle of, there is one verse, verse 54, that speaks about Peter. I mean, if you're reading it, almost, from a human perspective, seems a little bit out of place. Like, which one of these doesn't belong? Remember playing that game as a, as a little one? Well, it seems like verse 54 doesn't belong in the context here, but yet it does. It belongs in the context. Multiple times through our study of Mark's gospel, we have seen that one of Mark's uh, preferred ways of teaching is this sandwich style of teaching. Mark will begin to say something, he'll pause, he'll say something else, and then he'll resume the, the conversation again, or he'll resume the, the illustration again. And that's exactly what we see taking place here in Mark chapter 14. Mark is speaking specifically about Jew, uh, the Jewish uh, proceedings against Jesus, and he sandwiches Peter in there. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about verse 54 because verse 54 goes with our text next week when we pick back up in verse 65 when Peter denies Jesus three times. But I do want you to see that it is very, very intentional. And I think what Mark wants us to see here is I think he wants us to see a contrast or a juxtaposition between one man whom Jesus called the rock who in the moment of trial himself crumbled. Compare that, contrast that with the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, the capital R rock, who under trial stands firm. And so I think Mark wants to, to see a little bit of comparison and contrast here, and so he inserts Peter in verse 54, and then he'll pick it back up in verse 65, So let me just get you to hang tight there on verse 54 this week. We'll pick it back up next week in our study, but I think it is very, very intentional uh, that that Mark places Peter in verse 54 right in the middle of Jesus' trial. We see the Son of Man, the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is arraigned by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body of the day. Number two, the Son of Man is accused of blasphemy. That's the charge against Jesus. He's arraigned, he's arrested, he's brought to Annas, bounced over to Caiaphas, and then to the Sanhedrin. The charge against him is blasphemy. Blasphemy. Look at your Bible there. Look at verses 55 through 61. Now the chief priest and the whole council, remember only 23 members of the Sanhedrin were required for a meeting It's likely that we had more of that here. The whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus. Why? To put him to death. The problem is, they found none. What they did find was many that bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. What a shame. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, they're quoting Jesus. We'll see that they're misquoting Jesus here in just a moment. But they say, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands. And in three days, I will build another that is not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony, they did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and he made no answer. This was a fulfillment of prophecy, by the way. Jesus made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you Christ, the Son of the Blessed? You see, in the scurry, to get Jesus through the legal process here, the Sanhedrin is assembled. This is all taking place uh, in light speed time here, warp speed. The Sanhedrin is assembled. But witnesses, witnesses which were necessary for the trial, they had not been yet procured. And so you have the ruling body, you have the judges. What you don't have yet is witnesses. And so Mark tells us that the council... What were they doing? Well, they were seeking testimony against Jesus. The verb there is zeteo. It's translated seeking. Seeking. It's in the imperfect tense. All you need to know there is is that that means that the Sanhedrin was seeking, and they were seeking, and they were seeking. They continued seeking testimony against Jesus. They were literally trying to scrounge together some actors to play the part of witnesses, but they struggled, Mark tells us, to find any. And we should note here that the, that the Sanhedrin, they had zero, zilch, nada. They had no interest in searching for the truth. They were simply looking for a reasonable cause for which they could condemn Jesus. That's all this, this is a big charade that's taking place here in the wee hours of the morning. And they don't even have everything they need for a trial, by the way. They don't have witnesses at this point. They're, they're trying to garner them. They don't even have witnesses at this point. What the Sanhedrin did find in verse 56 is a group of false witnesses. This shows how corrupt the proceedings were. If real testimony could not be found, liars would certainly do the trick. If they couldn't find people who had real, sound, solid, stable testimony against Jesus, they would take anybody who said anything. So we see false witnesses here. False witnesses are still easy to buy today. Matter of fact, in some parts of the world, they wait outside of courts to be hired. The problem is, is that lying in concert is very difficult. Lying in concert is much more difficult than telling the truth. Mark notes that while many bore false witness against Jesus, their testimony did not agree. The literal translation of the Greek there is their testimonies were not equal. Their testimonies were not equal. That is, their stories didn't line up. And according to the law, the testimony of two witnesses was required for a conviction. That goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 19. If you want to convict somebody, you have to have at least two witnesses, and those two witnesses have to be able to corroborate the same story. The problem is the Sanhedrin could not procure that in this instance. After seeking and seeking and searching and searching for, for witnesses, they found none. They found none, so they probably hired some false witnesses here, probably coached them in what to say. Unfortunately, they did a real poor job trying to rehash the allegations. Well, what is this false testimony? Well, what was this false witness that these, these individuals bring against Jesus? Well, the specific false testimony is found in verses 57 and 58. Look there at your Bible. Mark writes, "And some stood up and bore false witness against him." And here it is. They said, "We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in 3 days I will build another that is not made with hands." And so you ask yourself, "What's the problem with this?" Well, the problem with this testimony is that there is a slide of hands going on. And the slide of hands is in the fact that these false witnesses misquoted Jesus. Jesus said something very, very similar to this. As a matter of fact, keep your place there in Mark chapter 14 and turn over for a moment to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And look at verse 19. John chapter 2, verse 19, are the words that Jesus spoke, and they differ, though slightly but ever so significantly, from what the false witnesses twisted his words to say in our text. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, you ask yourself, well, what's going on here? Well, to know what's going on here, you you have to know the context that John 2.19 comes to us in. And that context is that the Jews had just asked Jesus for a miracle that would prove or that would validate his identity as the Messiah. And while Jesus was under no obligation to prove anything, he does in this case offer his future resurrection as a proof in these words. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. There's no personal pronoun in front of destroy, but it's second person plural. And so you can put in there the word you. You destroy this temple in three days, and I will raise it up. The problem is that the so-called witnesses added words to Jesus' own testimony. They added the words or the phrase rather, that is made with hands. And they added the phrase, I will build another not made with hands. In order to make it sound like Jesus was talking about the physical brick and mortar temple. Jesus was not talking about the physical brick and mortar temple. Jesus was talking about his own physical body. His own physical body. Matter of fact, John tells us that just two, two verses later. If you're still there in John chapter 2, look at verse 21. John makes it blatantly clear. He was speaking about the temple of his body. But you know that the temple was an incredibly sacred place for the Jews. And so a misquote, a twisting of Jesus' words that made it sound like he was speaking about the physical brick-and-mortar temple would have absolutely incensed the Sanhedrin. It would have furiated them that Jesus would have unabashedly said, I will tear down your temple. The problem is that's not what Jesus was speaking about. Side note here: It's interesting to note that Jesus used the word "naos" in John chapter two, verse nineteen, for temple. It's the it's the Koine Greek word that uh, that Jesus used for temple instead of the the common word "hieron." Hieron was the the, the common word used for temple. And so what's the difference? Well, Hieron describes the temple as a whole, while Naas can be used to either speak about the temple as a whole, but more specifically, it speaks about the holy of holies. When Jesus said, destroy this temple, he used the particular word that was specifically designated the holy of holies, that place where God was said to dwell among his people. And so what's the significance here? Well, the significance is that Jesus did not speak about himself as being a temple in general terms. Jesus spoke about himself as the holy of holies, where God dwells among his people. You destroy it, and I'll raise it up. You destroy it, and I'll raise it up. But Jesus' words were twisted and used against him. And so Jesus finds himself toe-to-toe now with the high priest. Look there at your Bible. Look at verse 60 and 61. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus has not uttered a word up to this point. Tensions are rising as the attempts to secure corroborating testimony against him seem to be failing. The Sanhedrin can't seem to get their act together. In verse 60, Caiaphas raises from his magisterial perch and he questions Jesus directly. So prior to this, we've heard others giving false witness. Now Caiaphas rises from his magisterial perch and he speaks to Jesus personally, directly, And he asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? You see what's taking place here? The witnesses that have been brought against Jesus, they have not been able to get their act together. They have not been able to get their stories to jive. But Caiaphas implies that they indeed had made a sound case against Jesus. You catch that? No one has said anything that holds any weight. And Caiaphas stands and he says, what do you have to answer? In other words, what they've said is airtight, Jesus. What do you have to say for yourself? That's trickery. They hadn't said anything that was airtight. They hadn't said anything that was agreeable amongst them. And so even according to their own law, they could not proceed. You need two with the same testimony in order to try an individual. Mark uses the imperfect tense. It's the it's the continuation of Uh, part of the verb over and over and over again in our text this morning. So we we saw this uh, in the the Sanhedrin seeking testimony. They were seeking, continued seeking over and over and over again. They were seeking testimony against Jesus. We see the imperfect tense again here in the verb silent. Jesus was silent and he continued to be silent. He remained silent Hundreds of years before the incarnation of Christ, Isaiah wrote of the Messiah saying, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led before the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is literally fulfilling Old Testament prophecy by keeping his mouth closed. Well, if Caiaphas wasn't already mad, you can imagine that Jesus' continued silence only served to make his blood boil even further. In, In his mind, Jesus was in contempt of court. And so frustrated, Caiaphas puts Jesus under oath. We see this specifically in Matthew's account of this text. Matthew chapter 26, Caiaphas says to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. I adjure you by the living God. He put Jesus on notice here. He put Jesus under oath. It's interesting to note that while our English translation, uh, probably the translation you have sitting on your lap there, presents a question, the Greek actually presents a statement. So here's what I mean by that. In most of our translations, Caiaphas asks the question Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? But a literal translation of the text is, You are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. You are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. We'll see why that is here in just a few moments, because Jesus is going to turn Caiaphas' words right against him. Because it wasn't Jesus that that said that first. Caiaphas said it first. He made the statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. Why why does Mark preserve all this for us? Why why does Mark go to such great detail to give us this account, as well as the other synoptic gospel writers? Why, Why do they painstakingly keep and record these types of accounts? Well, Mark writes this passage not only to reveal that Jesus openly affirmed his identity as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of the Blessed, but also to provide his readers, that's you and that is me here this morning, with a shining example as to how we are to respond when put on trial for account of our faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, I'm telling you, these days are upon us, And they are coming in increasing weight and with increasing speed when you may find yourself put on trial for what you believe to be true about the Lord Jesus Christ. I think about Peter's words. Keep your place there. Let's go ahead and look at this. Keep your place in Mark chapter 14. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verses 18 through 23. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. I think that a part of the reason why Mark is recording this again is to provide a shining example as to how we are to respond when put on trial on account of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Peter's words here. This is the same Peter uh, who's warming his hands by the fire here in verse 54. This is the same Peter that will deny Christ 3 times beginning in our text next week. Listen to what he says though. In 1 Peter chapter 2 he says, "Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect." Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. You see that clearly in our text here. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps." Speaking about Jesus, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. J.C. Ryle once said this. He said, Christian, let it never surprise you if you are slandered and misrepresented in this world for Christ. Christ. We must never expect to be treated better than our Lord. This is a part of the cross with which we all must, to some degree or the other, bear after our conversion. You will be treated unjustly. Jesus said, if they treated me this way, they will treat you this way. Lies and false reports are among Satan's choicest weapons But when he cannot detour men or women from serving Christ, he then labors to harass them and to make Christ's service seem uncomfortable to them. Let us bear it patiently and not count it as a strange thing. Brothers, it is not strange. Sisters, it is not strange when you encounter trials of various kinds. Don't count it. Don't consider it. Don't view it. Don't interpret it as being a strange thing. It's not strange. It's not strange. Jesus himself tells us, woe to you when people speak well of you, but blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Friends, let me ask you, how do you respond when you're mistreated? How do you respond when you're mistreated? For the name of Christ maybe in your place of work, it may take place under your own roof. Some of you in here this morning have spouses uh, that are not believers. Some of you in here this morning have spouses that do not agree with you about the hope that resides within you, and they're contentious. They're quarrelsome. They're, They're meddling. They're always trying to poke a hole in and to cut your knees out from underneath you. How will you respond whether it's under your own roof or whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the marketplace or whether it's just in the arena of the day to day, as you seek to be a light and make Christ known, how will you respond when people treat you unjustly for Christ's sake? Will you entrust yourself to the one who judges justly? Or will you try to park in the parking spot that has God's name alone on it Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I'll take care of my adversaries. Christian, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. Number three, the Son of Man affirmed his identity. We see Jesus arraigned, we see Jesus accused, and now we see the Son of Man affirming his identity. Look at verses 62 through 64. This is Jesus responding to Caiaphas. And Jesus said, I am. Remember, the question was, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. At this point, the high priest stood and tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Again, the question that was posed to Jesus, are you the Christ? We said in the Greek, it's really, you are the Christ, the son of the blessed. And Jesus opens his mouth for the first time since he was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane and he replies, I am. I am. Without flinching, without swerving, without backing down, he said, I am. Jesus the rock stood without crumbling. It's important to note that if Jesus had answered any other way under oath, remember, we said Caiaphas put Jesus under oath. We see that in Matthew 26. I adjure you by the power of God. Put Jesus under oath. And so if Jesus had responded any other way than he had, he would have been guilty of perjury. Matthew actually records Jesus as responding, you have said so. You have said so. This picks up on the original language again. What's there in your Bible comes to you in the form of a question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The original language, Caiaphas says, you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. And Matthew picks up here. Jesus responds and says, you have said so. You have said so. You see, in a display of infinite superior wisdom, Jesus turned the table on Caiaphas. Prophet said, you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. Jesus said, yes, you yourself have said it. Do you see how Jesus just turns the table on the high priest here? Uses his own words against him. Jesus unflinchingly declares before the Sanhedrin, it is so, I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed. But then... Jesus doesn't just stop there. There's no no period there. Jesus continues on giving the Sanhedrin much more than they bargained for in a response. Jesus goes on and he says, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. If you were here with us weeks back, we, we said... This imagery here, coming with the clouds of heaven, speaks about the heavenly host, the the redeemed of God at the second coming of Christ. Speaks of individuals, not with moisture-laden, puffy things in the air, not clouds like that. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back with an army, a part of which, if you know him, will include you. pick up that same language again. Since then, we are surrounded by such a great what? Cloud of witnesses, right? Not speaking about moisture-laden, puffy things in the air, speaking about people. Jesus says, I'm coming back with power, and I'm coming back with the army of heaven, These phrases here that Jesus adds on to his own testimony about his identity are Old Testament laden. The words, son of man, seated at the right hand of power, that's a reference to Psalm 110, where David writes these words, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is reaching back into the Old Testament here as he speaks about his identity and he's picking up, first of all, Psalm 110. And Jesus reaches back also and he grabs a hold of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus adds to his own testimony here this phrase, coming with the clouds of heaven. It's a reference to Daniel 7.13, where Daniel himself writes these words, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Among the other hosts of heaven that are coming, there's one in their midst that is like the Son of Man, the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these references stand as a clear claim to Jesus' messiahship. Both passages that Jesus reaches back and grabs and attaches to his identity here serve to reveal that while the Sanhedrin thinks that they have Jesus on trial, in all reality, Jesus Christ has the Sanhedrin on trial. They are on notice. They're on notice. You think you have me on trial. But when all is said and done, I will have you on trial. Yes, the religious leaders would have Jesus executed, but Jesus will have the final word. And Jesus will have the final word in your life too, friends. Jesus will have the final word. Will he come as your redeemer, savior? Or will he come as your just judge? Jesus will have the final word. We heard this morning in one of our testimonies, one of our young men speak about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Jesus replied to them plainly, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. All the accomplishments, all the achievements, all the titles in all of Christianity could never save you. The blood of Jesus Christ applied to your otherwise bankrupt account. The righteousness of Christ applied to your otherwise bankrupt account can save you. Nothing in my hand I bring Simply and only to the cross I cling. Friends, Jesus' words here in verse 62 leave us with a deep sense of the reality and the certainty of his second coming. Jesus is coming back once more again at the very end of his ministry and in the face of his deadly enemies we find Jesus asserting the mighty truth that he will come again to judge the world and he will judge it according to righteousness. Righteousness. Will you be found in Adam, having a righteousness of your own, and therefore be condemned? Or will you be found in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of your own, but a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus? At this point, Caiaphas has had enough. Mark writes that he stands and he tears his garments and he says, what further witnesses do we need? I'm sure Jesus' confession came as a bit of a relief to him, by the way. I mean, just think about it. I mean, all, all the, the witnesses couldn't, couldn't get their stories to jive. They couldn't get things to line up. They, they couldn't bring together two witnesses who had corroborating testimonies against Jesus. And so Caiaphas puts Jesus under oath, actually tells him, you are the Christ. Jesus says, you said it so. Jesus puts the Sanhedrin on notice when he extends his identity commentary and says, I'm coming back to judge the world. But I'm sure that Caiaphas here breathed a little bit of sigh of relief when Jesus claimed that he was the Christ. Christ. Because they, they couldn't nail him down for anything prior, but the fact that Jesus himself, Jesus himself incriminated himself, claiming to be the Messiah, that was all they needed. That was all they needed. It's interesting to note that the law actually forbids the high priest from tearing his garments for personal troubles. But when acting as a judge, the high priest was allowed and even encouraged to tear his garments as a sign of horror and deep mourning when when he heard blasphemy against God. But again, friends, this is all a play. This is all a play act. This is all a bunch of charades. Caiaphas is not mortified that Jesus claimed to be God. Rather, Caiaphas is glorified in the fact that he will finally get to issue his death warrant. He's not mortified that Jesus committed blasphemy against God. He's excited that he's the one that gets to execute the death warrant. Caiaphas says, you have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? He's trying to garner buy-in. If he can incite the Sanhedrin, they will deal with Jesus swiftly. And so how do they respond? Look there at your Bible. Mark says, and they all condemned him as deserving death. They all condemned him as deserving death. Number four, we'll end here this morning. The Son of Man is assaulted by the guards. We see Jesus arraigned, accused, affirmed, and then lastly assaulted by the guards. Look at verse 65. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Luke Luke, the great physician, tells us who it was in his gospel that began to assault Jesus. Luke says that the men who were holding Jesus in custody were the temple police. They were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded Jesus or threw a cloak over his head and they hit him. The the Greek here has the idea with their bare knuckles, with a bald fist, They swung their hands into Jesus' cheek here. They beat him. And then they mocked him saying, if you're really the Christ, then prophesy. Tell us who it was that hit you. Surely you know. Which one of us was it that struck you? And they said many other things blaspheming him. Mark tells us that the guards also began to spit on Jesus, the vilest of personal insults. Remember, spit was considered unclean. It was one of the vilest of personal insults. The Romans always beat their prisoners in a cruel way. But the law of the Jews allowed them to beat an individual no more than 39 times. That's where we get the 39 lashes. That's where we see the the cat of nine tails come into play here. But Roman Roman law had no such limit. When, When Roman prisoners fell down, Roman guards picked them up and began to beat them again. Matter of fact, a lot of prisoners died before they were ever actually able to get all the way through the legal proceedings because the Roman guards would beat them to death. Prisoners' back became like a minefield uh, of wounds. Pieces of skin hung from their backs. The Romans had decided that Jesus must die, and now they beat him by Roman law. But friends, this was all foretold as well. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus' suffering had ever taken place, Isaiah had a vision of Jesus' face, as a matter of fact, after the cruel treatment that he endured. It's is probably a familiar text to many of you, but Isaiah wrote his appearance, speaking about Jesus, the Messiah, was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The literal rending is, is, uh, rendering is absolutely appalling. It is literally so marred from the form of man was his aspect or was his face that his appearance was not even that of the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus, as a result of the beating that he received, did not even look human anymore. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Everything about this trial was illegal. It was held at night. Those who arrested Jesus acted as his judges. False witnesses were used. Jesus was required to incriminate himself under oath. Jesus' testimony of being the Christ was never examined. Under Jewish law, there was required to be an element of mercy, and this meant that a unanimous verdict was equal to an acquittal, but Jesus did not get acquitted this day. The sentence for a capital case was not supposed to be passed on the same day as the trial and the one on trial was not supposed to be mistreated Jesus's trial was illegal in every in every sense imaginable but yet he like a rock marched forward friends do you know this Jesus is this the Jesus that you worship and serve or do you worship a Jesus that is a figment of your imagination a Jesus that is just like you who walks like you walk and talks like you talk and thinks like you think and speaks like you th- speak and, and frequents the places that you frequent? Jesus is a friend of sinners but he is a friend of sinners on his own terms not on ours. Is this the Jesus that you know? This is the Jesus who hung on Calvary's cross for the remission of your sin. If you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus repent just means to turn from your sin and to trust Jesus Christ. Put all of your hope, put all of your faith in Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus your achievements. Not Jesus plus your your status. Not Jesus plus anything. Jesus and Jesus alone. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are Humbled as we see how Jesus was tried, and as He was treated before the cross, we're horrified as we think of the cross where the innocent God Man hung there for us. the The one who, in His lips or on His lips, was found no deceit. The sinless One died for us. There is not a a more scandalous act. Uh, that has taken place in, in the history of the world, than that God would become a man and die for sinful men. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect substitute for our sin. Lord, thank you that you willingly went to the cross and you bore the weight of wrath reserved for me and you drank that bitter cup down to its dregs. Lord, I pray if there's any person here this morning who doesn't know Jesus savingly, that they would repent of their sins and they would put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, that he would receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that he is due. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.